Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with a special additional episode of Ion Travel. We broadcast from the West Indies and the island of Nevis in the Four Seasons Resort. This is a show we taped just before the pandemic. I'll be talking with Helen Russell, the author of The Atlas of Happiness. What a better time to talk about the pursuit of happiness and what it exactly means for a nation to be happy. Then Susan Gordon, who left Philadelphia for Nevis 23 years ago, tells me about the history of Nevis's sugar mills and what that has to teach us about the island itself and its special architecture. Coincidentally, she's also the author of Searching for Sugar Mills. And then, a fascinating look at the unique and surprising relationship of Alexander Hamilton and Nevis. There's all this and more as I on travel broadcast from the Four Seasons Resort in Nevis in the West Indies. Forty-three minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues from the Four Seasons Resort right here on Nevis in the West Indies. You know, it's, it's interesting when you start to talk to people who made a choice in their life to just pick up and move. Um, and it's not a question of going from like Chicago to, you know, to Indiana. It's a question of going from Philadelphia to basically Nevis. And that's my next guest, Suzanne Gordon, who's one of the great volunteers here in historic preservation. You run a real estate firm here, but you were at the Philadelphia Inquirer for how long? I was at the Inquirer for uh, 18 years and then newspapers in Philly for about 30 years before I moved When there. newspapers were really newspapers. They were great. It was a great time to be working there. What brought you here? Well, I, I wanted to, I, tur- I was turning 50 and I decided I wanted to do something different. So I applied to the Peace Corps and one thing happened, I couldn't sell my house. So then I came on an architectural um, project to Nevis, a volunteer vacation. I got to be friends with a lady who is now an architect here and we got this crazy idea to write a book about Caribbean architecture. And the name is Searching for Sugar Mills. Searching for Sugar Mills. Because sugar mills were so big at one point. Oh yeah. and, and It actually, was the economy. Right, a key to the economy, and still are an extremely important part of Nevis. So have you found some sugar mills? Oh, yeah, there's tons of them here. There were One time there were uh, 41 mills. A lot of them are hidden up in the hills, and you can't even see them now. The ones that have been gone into uh, gotten into uh, private hands are the ones that are best preserved, and we have several private homes, um, not to mention a couple are for sale, and <laughs> that are sugar mills. And we also have uh, some great uh, plantation inns, uh, Golden Rock, which is a stunning property as well as Montpelier. Uh, you can you can stay in Golden Rock in the mill. It's a honeymoon suite. You can dine in the mill at Montpelier. They're a very important part of the sense of place of Nevis. Nevis is all about the sugar history. Well, sugar at one point was your gold, wasn't it? Exactly, it was. And, and you know, at one point, uh, as Evelyn mentioned, the, the people got... Uh, 
you know, the British made more money off of uh, Nevis, Nevis sugar than anywhere else in the world, and we produced more than Jamaica did at one point in time. And then what happened? Well, various things happened. Uh, the sugar beet came online. The, um, the use of sugar uh, waned a bit. Uh, there was a lot of other areas, tropical areas, that started growing sugar, and it, it, eventually, it eventually just died out. Replaced by what? Well, tourism. But there was a huge period of time in between when tourism began and um, the sugar ended. Um, you know, of course, I wasn't here, and probably many of us were not, but apparently it was a very difficult time on Nevis. At that point, it was probably a welfare state. Practically. A lot of people left. I mean, a lot of people, my understanding is a lot of people went and worked on the Panama Canal. Um, a lot of men left. Um, if you go to any of the Virgin Islands, you'll meet a lot of people from Nevis who are working up there still. Um, so there was this diaspora of, of Nevisions and Catitians um, throughout the world. And then tourism came in. Tourism came in. Um, there was a little bit of tourism uh, early in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, we had, um, and then in 1991, of course, this wonderful property opened, and, and it just changed everything. This is the one that turned it around, the, the Four, Four Seasons. Seasons Resort. And, and the, the Four Seasons has been here for 29 years. It has been, yeah. And you've been here for 23. Yes, right. So, And I also came in the 70s, so I saw this beach and this property when it was just co- all coconuts. But this 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 company really changed the, the face of Nevis, and people learned tourism and how to work in tourism. Okay, so I know why you came. Mm-hmm. Why did you stay? Because I love it. I mean, it's a fantastic... But what keeps you here? Well, well, I I started a business, and my business has been successful. Um, I have a lot of friends here. I love the weather. I will never, ever step foot in the snow or cold ever again in my life, unless my life depends on it for some reason. Um, you know, it's just it's just a wonderful place to live. It's like living in a small town. Well, it is a small town. It is a small town. And it's like a third of the size of the county I lived in when I lived back in Philadelphia. So everyone knows everyone. Everyone cares about everyone. They take, you know, very good care of their neighbors and friends. And it's, it's a wonderful community. And, and I've met just amazing people here. Yeah, you talk about the weather. People tend to just live outside here. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you just don't even have windows most of the time. You just have screens or louvers or lattice shutters or shutters. You don't, and and I, and that's great because people just don't get sick very much here because you're always in the open air. And you have some storms. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're exciting. <laughs> Good reason to drink rum. <laughs> so basically, your name is any excuse to drink rum. No, no, no. No, no. <laughs> but you know, being an American expat, I can call you that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this forever because I talk to all the American experts wherever we, wherever we go for the show. Right. And I always ask them, okay, the minute you get there, your friends back home, first of all, think you're nuts. Mm-hmm. And then they start to come to visit. They come to see you. Some do. Some do. And what happens when they get here? Um, well, some, are, some finally get it. You know, like, oh, I understand why you moved here. Um, you know, and I understand why you stay. They, a lot of people just have trouble taking risks. And I know... I was accused of being absolutely stupid when I decided to leave my great job at the Inquirer to move here. But, you know, and one guy even figured out how much I was going to lose in my 401k for the next 20 years and gave me this printout. And I'm like, okay. Okay. And where is he today? Who he's knows? working hard. Is he, he's working hard. <laughs> Stick with us. We'll be right back with more from Suzanne Gordon and her book. And we're going to talk more about the architecture as well. Right back after this. Fifty-two minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here as we return to the Four Seasons here in Nevis. As Ion Travel continues, we've been speaking to Suzanne Gordon, the author of Searching for Sugar Mills, an architectural guide to the Eastern Caribbean. And, you know, you mentioned so many sugar mills, but it's more than the architecture of the sugar mills, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's the whole, it's the whole plantation system, and it's, and it's all of the architecture that um, makes Nevis what it is. And we, we have a very interesting um, history of, of housing here. Um, and each island has its own type of uh, vernacular housing. But, you know, here they have, you know, they have wonderful fretwork. You have big verandas. You have these homes that are called the skirt and blouse, which is a stone foundation and a wooden top. And a skirt and blouse. Skirt and blouse. So you've got the stone skirt on the bottom, and then the second floor is the blouse. And typically people would have like a shop downstairs, and then they would live upstairs where, you know, the breezes came through, the windows were open, and they had the high hip roof ceilings to let the air and the, and the heat rise and the air blow through. So, you What know, would traditionally define Caribbean architecture? What would you say? Uh, 
I would say buildings that uh, allow people to live comfortably and sleep comfortably in times without air conditioning and, you know, taking advantage of the airflow and not, you know, not face the storms, you know, keep the back of the house towards the northeast where the, where the weather comes in, protect from rain. So it's, now, it's logical stuff. Now, since you're an American, mm-hmm. do you have air conditioning? No, I have no air conditioning. See, you're not an American anymore. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> Not a real one. <laughs> Did you ever have it? No, not not on Nevis, no. no. So you really are the rebel. Uh, yes. <laughs> From an architectural perspective, obviously you did the book. When people come here, what's the surprise to them about the architecture? I, I think the fact that it's, it's very authentic. Um, people appreciate uh, seeing things that are different. One, one of the things about the sense of place that the architecture provides for Nevis is that it's it's different from everywhere else in the world. I mean, anywhere you go in the States, you could go, you know, down to the mall and you see a Target and you see a Walmart and everything looks the same. But when people come here, they're looking for things that look different. And I think they're very pleased and very surprised at how unusual the architecture is here and, and the buildings and the whole feel of the place. It's not like home, and that's the way we really need to keep it so that people want to come here. You don't go to Italy to see Walmart. You go to Italy to see churches and cathedrals and wonderful bridges. Although so many Americans, their idea of an adventure trip is to go to an American-branded hotel overseas and order a cheeseburger and think they've roughed it. That's right. That's right. Right. But for the people who really appreciate Nevis, they get out, they hike. I mean, the hiking here is phenomenal. They they go up the waterfalls. Tell me about the hiking. Well, we have the ultimate hike is to go to the peak, which is, of course, 32, 32 feet high. Um, it's very challenging, but a lot of people love to do it. Have you uh, done it? I have not. <laughs> You've been here 23 years? <laughs> no, I've 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 hiked Mount Liamiga, which is called Mount Misery over in St. Kitts, which was not too difficult. I haven't. No. But um, if you, anybody, you, so you, so you, you hiked Mount Baby. Mount Baby, yeah. yeah. It was not too hard. But then there's the water source. You can hike up to that from Golden Rock. And there's waterfalls. And there's just lots of walks. People walk. We have a thing called the Upper Round Road, which used to connect the uh, sugar plantations like midway up the mountain. And people walk from Golden Rock to Hermitage. And, you know, you, but we do recommend always that if anybody goes to the peak, they go with a guide. Because once in a while, someone will get lost, and it's best to have a knowledgeable guide with you. And when will your next peak guy, uh, your next peak I don't know. Be? I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking You've about it. You've been thinking about it for 23 years. <laughs> 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 all right. But it's all about the preservation, too. Right. Right? And, and so much development in any country of the world usually doesn't really take into account preservation because mm-hmm. it's, it's conflicting with progress. So how have you been able to maintain that strength of preservation here? Well, part of it has happened um, really because of a lack of money. I mean, places that aren't like super rich tend to have more old old places than places that are, are very rich. If, if you don't have this overall awareness that things have to be preserved. So part of it is that there really hasn't been a lot of money to change things, which is in a, in a sense a good thing. So... And then the other thing is I think people do here have an appreciation of, you know, keep, keeping things as they were and keeping, keeping them authentic. And, and things can be modernized without being changed on the exterior. And there's been a real um, awareness of not building higher than a coconut tree, um, not, not changing the scale of the town of Charlestown. You want everything to be like two stories. So there's not really a building code, but people have actually respected that, though. There, there has been a, a great deal of, of respect for that, yes. And, not, and we don't have any buildings around the island more than three stories. And no one has made any effort to do high-rises. I mean, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work here. Exactly. And people can get involved and volunteer. Yes. How can they do that? Well, many ways. I mean, we have uh, we have the Nevis Historical and Conservation Society, and we have lots of events. Um, we have research projects. Um, we can we have groups that come in, and and lots of archaeologists come and from different um, academic. Uh, universities around the world and do studies here. Uh, people can volunteer for that. We have different work projects. Um, you know, there, and, and, the, and the beautiful thing about all of that is we're not talking about a 40-mile drive to get there. No, no. It's, it's all manageable. Right. It's very easy. I mean, the farthest you can go here is like 10.5 miles. You go one way, 10.5. Or you go 10.5 <laughs> the other way. It's like when you're going around the island, you have to decide which way you're going to go. <laughs> can I quote you on that? Sure. <laughs> 
That's like saying no matter where you're going, there you are. There you are, right. <laughs> Suzanne Gordon, <laughs> author of Searching for Sugar Mills, an architectural guide to the Eastern Caribbean. And thank you so much for joining us. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming from the Four Seasons Resort right here in Nevis as Ion Travel returns right after this. British journalist, best-selling author and speaker, but she's also the author of a book that uh, I encourage you all to get. It's called The Atlas of Happiness. Helen Russell, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Well, good. Uh, by the way, uh, I think this is a book that is much needed and uh, and will be very helpful, but I love the idea of, of the research because you started this research almost eight years ago trying to figure out you know, who's happy, but most importantly, why they're happy. Yeah, that's right. So I was living and working in London as a journalist for 12 years, and I had no intention of leaving until my husband was offered his dream job working for Lego in rural Denmark. And Denmark at the time, as your listeners will know, had just been voted the happiest country in the world. Um, and I became fascinated by this. I was pretty burnt out at the time, as many people working in cities We'd also been trying to start a family for years with years of fertility treatment, but nothing ever worked. We were so tired and stressed. So suddenly this other life possibility was dangled in front of us. And so we kind of thought, well, if we can't get happy there, where could we? So I decided <laughs> to give it a year. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll test every area of Danish living, speak to as many politicians and experts and psychologists and sociologists as I could to find out why Denmark was so happy. Um, yeah, and that was my starting off point, really. All right, well, let's, well, let's start with, well, then let's start in Denmark. I mean, why are the Danes so happy? Well, I mean, they, they do have this great social welfare system. We do pay the taxes that, um, that, that fund it. But there's also the really high levels of trust in Denmark. Um, there's high levels of national pride. And there's also the, the word that listeners will be now familiar with, this huga, this idea of coziness and of prioritizing time together that's really important to Danes. They also have the word that I love is Arbeidsglow from Arbeider, the Danish for work and glow, the word for happiness. It literally means happiness at work, something that is prioritized in Denmark. And since most of us spend most of our time working, more time working than we do with friends and family, it seems like a pretty good idea, pretty important to like your work, like your colleagues, find a way to make that pleasurable or at least worthwhile. So I think that helps a lot for Danes. Well, I love the idea that the name of your first book was The Year of Living Danishly. <laughs> I love it. Thank uh, you. But here's my question. When you talk about coziness, is it, is, is it a safe assumption that the coziest the country, the happier the country? That's interesting. Well, there are a few similar words to Hugo around the world. The Scandinavian countries each tend to have their own. There's Moost um, in Sweden. Um, even in the Netherlands, there's a very similar word. In Germany, there's a similar term with all slight cultural variations. I'm sure there is something to do with, with trust. If you have the headspace uh, not being anxious all the time, then you can be happier. If you if you trust the people around you, Danes trust each other so much, they're happy to let their baby sleep outside in strollers uh, while they pop into a cafe for lunch. Um, so that you, re- you realize, of course, Helen, you realize, of course, that if we do that in the United States, you're arrested for child endangerment. I know, and I actually ended up uh, in email correspondence with the woman who, the Dane who famously um, experienced this the hard way. But yeah, it's... It, Totally normal here. And it just was just as strange for me coming from London where, you know, you lock your door, you lock everything. But here there is this sense that because uh, everybody contributes, that everybody participates, you're all in it together. So you kind of trust your neighbors and, and even strangers. All right. So Denmark was the starting point, but it's certainly not the end point. Uh, let's talk about some other countries. Uh, I'll start with the A's, Australia. Yeah, so in Australia, it's such bad news at the moment, but this this idea that um, fair go is a is a really, and it doesn't quite sound right in a British accent, but fair go is my, my best Australian effort. This idea that as long as you are giving something your best shot, whether it's uh, on the sporting field, whether it's meeting new people, it's this idea that you don't have to be the best at something, but you have to participate. You have to give everybody a fair chance. 
And as someone growing up in the UK, where if you weren't good at sport at school, uh, you were a social leper for a little while. And also it just meant that you just didn't play sport. And that seems uh, like a very different way of approaching it, where you're just, the reward is for participating. And there are lots of studies into uh, psychology and well-being that show that being a part of something, um, being part of a team gives you a great sense of belonging, gives you lots of um, physical and mental benefits. So that seems like a really uh, positive way to approach life that I thought we could actually all learn from. It's a very down-to-earth, kind of salty at times approach to to happiness and to living a good life. Now, there's the other way of doing this on a converse level. Uh, also reminds me of a, of a phrase in Australia, right? No worries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which has sort of been taken up, and I write about this as well, by, you know, in the US and in Canada and to an extent in the UK as well. It's this idea that life's a beach, even though a lot of Australians do not live near a beach, but there is an awful lot of water. And there's this idea that you are spending a lot of your time outside. Uh, You have to get on with your neighbors, is cultivating this kind of no worries mentality, which is very different to the the idea of life that I grew up with and that many people grew up with, especially growing up in cities or in uh, cultures where there's a lot more pressure to succeed, perhaps, or uh, a lot more competition. This idea that you start from a fair, a fair kind of place where everyone is equal and it's no worries. You're just going to make friends with strangers. You're going to have really easy interpersonal relationships. Whereas in the UK and Denmark, certainly, you have to be introduced by at least two family members before you can even consider smiling and talking to a stranger. But in Australia, it's this real kind of hospitality and this generosity of spirit, which I found really inspiring. You know, as you go from country to country, each country, or I should say each culture, has a specific uh, definition of, of happiness, which may or may not jive with our own. But one that has always fascinated me, fascinated me is Japan. Yeah, me too. And certainly I've traveled there about 10 years ago for work. And then I had the opportunity to go there again to uh, to work recently. And just this idea. So in Japan, they have wabi-sabi, this idea of the beauty of imperfection and transience and the fact that the nature and the natural world is not perfect. There will be knobbly trees and there will be moss and there will be mold, but there is a beauty in that. And there is a beauty that comes with age and wisdom, which I think certainly in in your culture and mine, there is this emphasis on the new all the time, the emphasis on the shiny. Um, But actually in Japan, there is, there is value to things having an age and being a bit, it's even broken at times, which feels like something it's very helpful to bear in mind. I career towards my 40th birthday right now. Uh, as a woman, especially, it's really helpful to get this idea that with age comes wisdom and that it's a positive thing. And our last lines and our cracks and our scars, because we all have scars of one kind or another, are to be valued. They're what make us who we are and worthwhile. And in Japan, they also have this amazing, the ancient art of kintsugi, which is repairing broken ceramics with metallic lacquer so that the scars and the cracks, instead of being concealed, they are highlighted in pure gold. And the beauty is because of the imperfection, not in spite of it. So I just found that incredibly inspiring. And you know, walking around Tokyo for work a couple of years ago, it was just a real sense of, although it's a country with, with many challenges and it's not particularly happy country, but there are people who are finding meaning life in life and finding a really positive way to live by embracing some of these traditional principles. I should tell you, Helen, that given the Japanese model, I looked in the mirror and I had a choice between beauty and wisdom. I went immediately for wisdom because beauty was just not going to work. <laughs> this is radio, but I'm sure you have both in space, Peter. Oh, stop, stop. That's sucking up in the, in the worst way. But, but bottom line, you know, when you're in that, con- in, in that part of the world, the definition of happiness in Japan is completely contrasted with the definition of happiness in, in China. Yeah, and, and China is a really interesting one because in, so in China, uh, there's this concept of Zing Fu, which is often translated as a good mood, but actually, or just happiness, but actually refers not to a good mood, but a good life. And it's one that may include pain and suffering and challenges. In fact, the, the Chinese character for Zing actually represents torture. So, you know, you get the idea. Life's not going to be a, a bed of roses, but it will be meaningful. It will be worthwhile. So in China, people will pursue their Zing Fu, their, almost their calling, their meaning in life. And this feels like a really valuable thing to bear in mind uh, as we enter a new work year that sometimes things will feel hard and there are huge social and political and economic challenges that many of us face. And sometimes work doesn't feel fun and sometimes family life can be incredibly challenging. 
You're but right. If our, if our life has a meaning, then it's you know, worthwhile. Uh, Helen, we were just at the break. We were talking about you know the cultural differences in definition between, let's say, the Chinese and the Japanese. But one of the countries that has always fascinated me as well in terms of their approach to, well, not just happiness but well-being, is is Portugal. Uh, you know, you go to, to the uh, Alfama district and everybody's singing in fado, and 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 mm. that sort of singing. It, it people have said to me, oh, it's. It's sad. It's so sad. And people are so sad when they sing the song. But then somebody explained to me that the singing of the song itself is about the pursuit of the, uh, you know, getting away from melancholy. Yes, this is a really interesting one. So the spado and part of that music is sudaji, this Portuguese term that is represents a feeling of longing and melancholy or nostalgia for a happiness that once was, even um, a happiness that you merely hoped for that, that perhaps didn't materialize. So it is sad, but it's in a way that perhaps if we look through old photographs, we might feel that sort of bittersweet feeling when we reminisce. Or if you think of someone fondly who's perhaps not in your life anymore. So it's a really valuable sort of pleasure pain. And I think there are, there are lots of studies from psychologists showing that allowing ourselves this temporary sadness counterintuitively makes us happier. Um, by stimulating neural pathways, by encouraging us to be more grateful for what we've got. So in Portugal and to Brazil, to an even greater extent, they even have Dia de Sodaje on the 30th of January each year. They have a whole day centered around um, you know, playing Fado music on the radio and um, people sharing poems. It's this idea that you should celebrate lost love just as much as you should love that is still there and that happiness that has passed is still of value. So yeah, it's this idea that you can be sad, and being sad will actually help you be happier in the long run. <laughs> well, in America, you see, we, have, we do it a different way. We don't celebrate lost love. We celebrate former restraining orders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so romantic. But it's interesting. So Germany also has, a, has something along these lines. So they have Gemütlichkeit, which is often thought of a bit like the Danish Hygge around coziness. But actually, in Germany, they're very strict on the idea that you can get gemuchlichkeit, you can get cozy, but only once you've done your day of work. So you may not enjoy work, but then you get the reward. And in German culture, there is this idea of hard work and knuckling down. So you've probably heard of it, but the German wedding celebrations often kick up with a custom called uh, polterabend, which is smashing porcelain and make, making the happy couple sweep up the shaft or they will store a log of wood together, and that's meant to present the hard work that marriage involves, or that sometimes there will be pain and sometimes there will be sorrow, and it will be difficult at times. And I just think that that's a really refreshing way of looking at it, having been with my husband for about 10 years now. You know, nobody warns you often at the wedding that things aren't always going to be sunny and there will be tough times. And I feel like in the US and the UK, we are perhaps not as well equipped to handle the tough times because there's such an emphasis on pursuing the jazz hands happy all the time. And I think other cultures do that a lot better than us, so we can really learn from them. Well, then there's the other idea of some countries more formalizing the concept of happiness, sort of like the... uh you know, the, the gross national happiness quotient, uh, I think of a country or a kingdom of like Bhutan. Yes, and Bhutan is a fascinating idea. So the gross national happiness, measuring that instead of gross national product. And the idea had been in place throughout Bhutanese history, but was formalized in 1972 when uh, King Wanchuk IV told a journalist in the Financial Times, of all people, that gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. And now they measure it and they prioritize it ahead of financial gain. And it's that last bit that's the crucial thing, because we can all decide, oh, we want to be happier. But actually, I, I talk all around the world about Scandinavia and the happiness model and different cultures. And many people I speak to say, well, I'd love, you know, all of that happiness and all that great welfare state, but I don't really want to pay the taxes that correspond with it. And in Bhutan, they've, they've made it very clear. They've made that decision that they're putting happiness first. So they'll measure and prioritize this. They said no to joining the World Trade Organization because doing so would have meant opening up their forests in a way that wasn't compatible with their goals for the environment. They said no to McDonald's and their cash. Um, there's this idea that um, they're the, one of the few developing countries putting sustainability at the heart of their government plans, and it has made people happier. They record the whole population every couple of years. Life expectancy has doubled. Education is now universal. People are happier. 
So it's really fascinating, of course, on a small scale, but you can see that these measures really do make a difference. And the EU was trying to implement a lot of these ideas uh, from around 2011. Ban Ki-moon is really keen on the idea. But... Um, yeah, it hasn't quite caught on in the rest of the world yet, but they are a really fascinating country, yeah, to keep an eye on. We're talking to Helen Russell, the author of The Atlas of Happiness. I, I, I can't let you go without asking you, other than Denmark, what's the one place in the world that makes you the happiest? Oh, great question. Um, I think, so Iceland. Um, I traveled to Iceland before I had ever been to any other countries, in the Nordic countries or any of the other Viking nations. And I found it so fascinating, you know, sitting in the Blue Lagoon with sort of geezers exploding in the background. You cannot fail to be overawed by that. And the Icelanders have this idea of, of tataridost or it will all work out. And they just have this utter confidence. I love the, the Viking spirit that you find in Iceland, this idea that even though the landscape is so inhospitable and the climate is so brutal that they even have um, ad hoc solar free or sun holidays, if there's an Icelandic heat wave of over, well, 18 degrees Celsius, I'm not quite sure the Fahrenheit, but even in summer, the weather is so abysmal that they just keep going and they're really creative <laughs> and they produce this great art. So yeah, Iceland has a special place in my heart. Helen Russell, the author of a good book and a great book a book that'll make you happy or at least send you in the right direction. The book, The Atlas of Happiness. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Forty-three minutes after the hour, it's Peter Greenberg here with you from the island of Nevis and the Four Seasons Resort as we continue Eye on Travel. Joining me now is someone who... Uh, I, I can call her a local. She was born on St. Kitts, but raised everywhere else, and now in Nevis. She was at the United Nations for a number of years, and now she's the historian, but most importantly, the head of the World Heritage Committee for Nevis. Evelyn Hendel, how are you? I am fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You know, when we talk about history, the first name that comes up is not someone from Nevis. It's Alexander Hamilton. Yes, there's the son of our soil, and Alexander Hamilton is what has driven us and given us our name on the international um, scene. Had been his birthplace, um, we have garnered quite quite a lot in terms of our notoriety because of him. And he, too, gained a lot from us for his short little nine years that he spent on Nevis. He, but what, what's the St. Croix connection? Well, he moved to St. The family moved to St. Croix. Ah. And, that, and from St. Croix then off to, to New York. So he left St. Croix at the at age of uh, 14 for, um, for the U.S. But he mainland. was born? He was born on Nevis. Yeah. He also, the recent history has been telling us that um, through Michael Newton, author Michael Newton's research, that he also spent um, a couple of years on St. Bart's. So he got around. He got around. He got around. Yes. Now, yes. you know, if I go to the island of St. Helena in, in the middle of the Atlantic, I'll see Napoleon's house. What's left of Alexander Hamilton and Nevis? Well, actually, very little, except the land. And the remains of his home, the, which was considered his family's home, the remains that were left here in the 1700s, in the 1700s, um, were the stair, the step, not the 1700s, in 1970s, in the 70s. Oh, that's what was left. The remaining were the, the steps of the what was thought to be the family's home. And through independence, our countries gained independence in 1983, and the U.S. government through USAID assisted with a donation of a million dollars to get the, the house rebuilt. And so, and? and so we have that now, which forms our Alexander Hamilton Museum uh, of Nevis history. And also upstairs, it serves our parliamentary sittings. So that house is in Charlestown, and that is the compound. They are also, they, all of the land on that area were considered his mother's property. And the, the, there is another house on the side near the museum, which was also considered the, the family home as well. The foundation of it is still there, but the house itself has been owned over time by numerous families, and that too forms part of the museum today. What's the story that you tell about him? The story that we tell about him is that, one, yes, he left here at nine. However, how he became and what he became 
were derived from his years here. He and his years on St. Croix. His years of getting into economy, um, the financial market. Um, being, at the age of nine? At the age of being able to, because where his home, where the home, the family home is, is right on the waterfront where the slaves used to be deposited for sale. So he experienced all of that at nine. Also, the economy of Nevis during the, that time, going back a hundred years before him, it was booming. The economy on Nevis paid the most to the crown, to the British crown, in taxes for almost 100 years. So he not only saw the slave trade, he saw what needed to be done for the ocean. Correct, he did. He he was the one who created the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard was developed in, 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 in his design, mental design was to protect the oceans, one, to protect the, the, the financial um, systems in New York from the British, and also to protect the, the seas from bringing in any more countries, bringing in any more slaves and selling more slaves. Now, UNESCO has been here. Yes. And now you've got some stuff going on with them. Yes. We have been nominated and won uh, uh, the nomination to be St. Kitts Nevis on the prestigious World Heritage Committee. We were voted on. Um, there are only a 21 member states, and we, being one of the smallest islands, we were nominated in 2017. And you can still go see where he hung out. Yes. <laughs> Evelyn yes. Henville of the World Heritage Committee for Nevis. Yes. Nevis and, and Kids. Excuse, oh, yeah. Got to leave and say Kids. I got it. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. Back with more of Ion Travel right after this. Fifty-two minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Four Seasons Resort on the island of Nevis in the West Indies and the Caribbean. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest I've known for a long time. She has figured it out how to do her job in the best location possible. But of course, I knew her when she was back in Atlanta for Four Seasons. She's actually the regional vice president and general manager of the Four Seasons here, Yvette Thomas-Henry. How are you? I am well. How are you? So you lucked out. I certainly think so. <laughs> You know, I've been coming here for maybe 25 years. We actually broadcast this show about 15 years ago from here. We did. Interesting. We did. And most Americans, I have to say, don't even know where Nevis is. Very true. Right? Very true. So you have to educate them. <laughs> it's a little island. Actually, it's part of the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis. And if you're flying here from the Northeast, I think the simplest way to get here is probably get going through Miami. And you take a three-hour flight, you head to St. Kitts, and then you take a ferry over from St. Kitts to Nevis. So you don't fly in directly to the island of Nevis. You do take a ferry over. So what you're basically saying, it's part of the adventure. Absolutely. It's absolutely part of the adventure and a beautiful part of it. Now, you're originally from the Caribbean. I am. From where? I'm from St. Thomas, and I grew up in St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands. But my mom was born in St. Kitts. So, so you, you've come home. Yes, I've come home. Yes, quite literally. What do people not understand about, about Nevis? I don't think they understand the beauty of the island. The beauty of the island is really a part of the people, their heart and soul of the people of Nevis, the proud Nevisians who don't want to leave their island. They're committed and tied to it and love it here. And they're not looking to go elsewhere because there's so much natural beauty and there's so much connection to the culture and connection to the family members that are here. And I think they're the sense of pride that they have, the sense of pride of seeing individuals move through their lives here on the island, move into positions in the resort because a number of the employees who live here have family members who live here. The pride of seeing them go from one position to the next and also get elevated, that's something that really, truly is remarkable to them. I'm going to make a wild guess that you don't have a lot of turnover here. We don't have a lot of turnover. No, you're absolutely right. We've been open for 29 years and we have individuals who were here on the opening team that are still with the resort. However, we do have new employees here. Of so, course you do. But, yeah. the, but the bottom line is this is an island where everybody sort of knows everybody. Everyone is connected here. And it's quite often that I'm speaking to an employee and they say, well, you know my mom or you know my sister, you know my brother. And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, they're in this department. So it is a resort that is filled with families. Literally, when we say we're a family, it really is because we are a family. <laughs> 
What was the biggest surprise for you? Because you came from Atlanta. You've only been here a few months. Even though you were coming home, what was the biggest surprise about this sort of a resort? Because you came from the Four Seasons in Atlanta, which is not really a resort. No, it is definitely not a resort. The magnitude of this resort, I think, is impressive. We have residential components. We have a golf course. We have tennis courts. We have guest rooms. 84 You have guest rooms at a resort? Let me write that one down. Incredible, right? But the thing is, it is not just simply a hotel with guest rooms. We have all sorts of other facets to it. And we have tennis pros and golf pros, all because those are part of this resort as well. So I think the biggest surprise is the vast magnitude. But beyond that, the incredible amount of experience that is here because you have such long-standing employees. You ask a question, you can find out the history. Literally, 29 years of history, someone is here that can explain it to you. Well, on an island of this size, I think the best way to do it is, I know a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And you typically know a guy who knows a guy who you're related to, who here and things that happen here really impact the community. What, so as opposed to Las Vegas where what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, no. what happens here everybody knows about. What happens here everybody knows about it and when it's something good it's really broadcast across the resort and across the island. It is not unusual. Actually it's actually something that's really nice when the premier says I heard you've had a promotion. Send me the information so I can share it. I mean it's something that really is meaningful to them when they can see that you don't have to leave the island to to grow, to develop, to get further in your career, and, and certainly to be promoted here at the resort. Because in travel and tourism, the, one of the biggest challenges, at least in the United States, is employee retention. Yes, that is absolutely not our challenge. Our employees want to be here. They love being here. They take great pride in saying that they've worked for Four Seasons and that generations of their family has worked for Four Seasons. Now, when you were in Atlanta, there you were at the world's biggest airport. You could source anything for that hotel. <laughs> yes. Anything could be flown in at a moment's yes, notice. Yes. Not always the case here. No, it does take a lot of planning. I mean, we have to be very strategic. You're right. There is no Starbucks, but there's also no Home Depot and there's nothing here well, wait, that's, that's right around the corner. That's a benefit. <laughs> Well, in some instances it is. You certainly are then focused on what the, the beauty and the gems that are here on the island. But, but if honestly, you're going to order nails, you better order a lot of them. But if you're going to order something that you need tomorrow, you needed to have ordered it two weeks ago so that we can make sure it's gotten from the supplier onto our freight that comes in every week. And so we've got to be very thoughtful and mindful about what we need and ordering it in advance. So when you first got here, your first response was, I can't get it tomorrow? Exactly. No, that you can't. <laughs> That's right. And I had to find out the timing for when the tankers come in and what do we need to do to make sure that we're ordering it in time. Yeah, it's really, truly see, understanding See, the it. beautiful thing about an island is you judge or you gauge your schedule by when the tanker and the freighter come in. That's correct. And you also gauge what are the supplies that you need and how long do you need them for. So you're not just ordering for when the freight comes in on Friday. You're ordering enough to take you through for however long length of time that you need it for. So in April, you're planning for Christmas. Well, in April, there are certain things that we are absolutely planning for Christmas. Yeah. Without a doubt, particularly if it's something that we're going to need from the mainland, the U.S., in order to come here and our vendors need to go there to, to get it. So, yes, we're planning that far in advance. But that means we also have employees who are thinking that far in advance and who know the cycles to say, okay, if for any reason... You need it, you got to go get it. Absolutely. Yvette Thomas-Henry, the Regional Vice President and General Manager right here at the Four Seasons in Nevis. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming as Ion Travel continues from the island of Nevis and the Four Seasons in the West. If you've been reading the news lately, there's been an explosion in cruise ships, in cruise ship building, in the types of cruise ships that are being built, in the audiences that they're chasing, whether it's uh, Richard Branson and Virgin Cruise, uh, a whole different audience there. Uh, river cruises still exploding with much more luxury ships. And then most recently, one of the big river cruise people, Viking, announced that they're joining the pack for luxury expedition ships to go to uh, far-flung destinations uh, where they're basically their own infrastructure and uh, adding a little luxury in the process. Let's talk about that with Cruise Critics Managing Editor, Chris Grayfaust. How are you, Chris? I'm doing good, Peter. So this is, you know, Viking was interesting because... They used to start, you know, they they were do, uh, at a point where they were christening like 10 river boats at a time. Um, and then they started to go back to uh, Tor Hagen's original roots, which, of course, was cruise liners. And they started, the, you know, the Viking cruise ships, which will be ocean going vessels. And now he's entered the luxury expedition ships. 
Yeah, that's correct. They've just they've just recently announced that they will be adding two expedition ships uh, to their lineup beginning in 2022. And what's interesting about these ships, they're going to have a lot of the same things that people who like Viking already will enjoy. They're going to have a thermal Nordic spa. They're going to have that same kind of lovely Scandinavian design. But a few things they're doing that are interesting is that for the first time on an expedition ship, really, they're going to have an enclosed, like an enclosed marina so that people can get on the Zodiacs and the uh, RIB boats with, um, you know, without being exposed to the elements. So that's kind of something that's a little bit new and exciting. I have to laugh about that. God forbid you should be on a ship and not be exposed to the elements. I mean, isn't that really part of the, <laughs> isn't really that part of the experience? Well, there is that, right? I mean, if you're going to go all the way to Antarctica, don't you want a little bit of wind in your hair? For sure. You know, there is there is that idea. But, you know, we also have to think about the uh, market for these ships. You know, it is people that are a little bit more comfortable in life, right? And so they might be at a point where getting in and out of Zodiacs with a lot of wind buffering them and that kind of thing might be a little difficult. So I think Vikings making it, making it accessible for more people. I get that. I get that. And once again, when you see what's going on with Silver Sea, with National Geographic, with Crystal, everybody's upping the game in that luxury expedition ship business. Yeah, everybody now wants to go to far-flung places, but they don't want to give up style and, and comfort. You know, I really think that's what's driving this. In the past, expedition ships used to be a little bit really more like an adventure. You know, they were kind of not that fancy. You'd feel the water and the waves and that kind of thing. And now people want a little bit more, um, a more comfortable experience when they're going even to these far-flung places. Exactly. And, and the price is not necessarily inexpensive. No, not at all. Uh, no, they're, you know, they, these, are, these are bucket list trips, um, and there's, but you know, there's more of them coming into the market, so we might see the prices come down slightly. We'll have to see how that kind of comes out, because you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people coming into the market, and as always, when everybody comes in, then there's a lot more competition. You know, here's the other idea. You know, everybody wants, when you take a look at the real numbers here, and you see this on your end all the time, and that is, the cruise industry is still essentially in its infancy if you're looking at the evolution of travel. Only 30 million people have ever taken a cruise, at least Americans. Um, there are only 365 ships out there uh, around the world. Uh, so the upside here is tremendous. Uh, they're finding new ports every day that people didn't even know they had ports they're sailing to. Um, and yet, the shipyards are building more ships than ever before. Every shipyard is at 100% capacity. So the excess occupancy now, the excess availability in terms of capacity, it's got to be a buyer's market. Yeah, you know, I think what you said about people going to new ports and that kind of thing is very interesting in that one thing that Viking also is doing is they're taking these expedition ships to the Great Lakes, which on the surface, you know, doesn't always sound necessarily that exciting. I mean, the Great Lakes, you know, the Midwest of America's U.S., you know, Midwest, it's not necessarily where you think of grand adventure, but they're plotting out these itineraries that kind of are giving another look at places like Thunder Bay or Duluth or, um, Again, places that on the surface might not seem like they're expedition-esque, but in fact they're finding um, UNESCO uh, like bioreserves and uh, nature types of things and going through the Sioux Locks, a little bit of uh, enrichment they can give people about that kind of history. And so they really are kind of shining a different light on places that people might not have considered cruising to. You know what I'm waiting for cruises too, and you might even know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you a question, and it's not meant to trap you. I'm actually asking a question of my audience, and here's the question. What's the largest body of water in North America? Do you know? Is it Lake okay. Superior? No. Is it Hudson yes. Bay? Now you got it. It is okay, Hudson right. Bay. I'm glad, and, I'm glad this is in jeopardy. I would have lost. No, but you know what? Most people do lost. They never even get it. You got it on the second guess. The thing is, mo everybody should listen to this show now and then go get an atlas or a map. Look at the map of North America. You will be astounded at the, at the size of Hudson Bay. It is basically bigger than all the Great Lakes combined, and nobody knows anything about it. I'm waiting for the cruises there. You know, that's exciting. That, that would be very exciting. There have been a few cruises that have done that Northwest Passage, you know, going yes. way far north, but we haven't really seen the Hudson Bay market really pick up, and I, I agree with you. That would be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. Now, let's, let's change gears just briefly 
You've got Richard Branson coming out in a couple of months with Virgin Cruises. And of course, their model for their audience is no kids. You know, you do what you want. Every and and, and everybody's going to have fun there. I mean, it's it's. I like to call it like Tinder at sea. <laughs> well, we'll see if it's like. I don't know how many people are going to be swiping on the ship. We'll have to see if they enable that. That's a good. That's a good addition. They should add that. Yeah, exactly. So that's the first thing. And then Ritz-Carlton's coming on board, although they've been somewhat delayed in the delivery of their ships with the Ritz-Carlton brand of cruise ships. Yeah, I think what you're seeing here is that people are eyeing the cruise market. It's it's exactly what you talked about earlier when you said that there's just not not as many people have taken cruises as they have gone on land trips and that kind of thing. The cruise industry is always looking to get new people to take that first cruise because usually when they take that first cruise, they want to come back. And so you're seeing these different brands come in that have a lot of recognition and loyalty among uh, their customers. And so if you're a Ritz-Carlton loyalist and you love their hotels, and I mean, really, who doesn't, then you are going to love their Ritz-Carlton at sea. I mean, essentially what they're doing is taking that concept of comfort and luxury and high-end service, and they're bringing it to a ship that's quite, you know, fairly fairly small, so it's more like they're calling it a yacht. And, you know, why wouldn't you want to do that? You know, and likewise, Virgin is looking to have the same kind of excitement that they always had with their different products and kind of that rock star element that Richard Branson brings and bringing that to sea. And I, I think it's going to be really fun to see all the all the things that they're bringing, like the tattoo parlor at sea. I, I'm not quite sure if I'm up for a tattoo at sea, but we'll see who is. You know, Chris, we were doing so well until you mentioned that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> No Are you, si- you hold it. Oh, unless there's serious alcohol involved and I have no memory of the incident. But 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 here's the thing. Are you really serious? There's really going to be a tattoo parlor at sea. Can you imagine buyer's remorse 3000 miles away from a port? You know, I'm just not sure how that's going to work in reality because tattoos, when they're first made, they're not really supposed to be exposed to sun or salt, and that's exactly what you have at sea. So we'll have to see how that goes. Oh, my God. I, you know what? The stories that are going to come out of that, I mean, that's, you know what? I, I have a mantra, and my mantra is, bad decisions make great stories. This qualifies. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll have it for the rest of your life. <laughs> On that one, the parade starts right now. I mean, you know, look, with, with all due respect to people who have had tattoos, and I do respect those people because it was a personal decision and I can't make a value judgment. However, every time I go to Las Vegas, I find myself sitting in a stationary position near the entrance for at least 30 minutes because it's the best show on earth. Because as everybody walks by, I'm thinking to myself four words. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure wow. it's going to be the same way on the ship. It'll be. I'm sure the seats near the tattoo parlor will be some of the best in the house. Well, here's the best part of it. You know and I know the lawyers are going to get into this, and before you can ever have a tattoo on that ship, you're going to sign a three-page waiver so that you have no recourse once, you know, you want to put on, you know, <laughs> your girlfriend's name forever and you're just about to break up, you know. I'm telling you. This is going to be fun. It'll be great. It'll be great theater at sea. Forget Cirque du Soleil. Forget the Broadway show reviews. Just park yourself in front of the tattoo parlor, have a Corona, and wait for the action. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to hey, be great. I do too. Chris Gray Foss of Cruise Critic, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Two minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues from the island of Nevis in the West Indies at the Four Seasons Resort. So much to talk about here, and they have so many great programs here when you come here because you're literally up against the water. You can't avoid the water, and, and by the way, why would you? And if you're not avoiding the water, then you're going to hang out with my next guest. He's the unofficial turtle liaison guy. <laughs> you know, earlier in the show, we talked to um, Yvette, the general manager, about long-term employees. Ignacio Otley is one of those. He's been about 20 years, I believe. Uh, but he is the actual unofficial turtle liaison guy, <laughs> and every year when the sign Scientists come to tag the, the turtles. Guests here can actually get in there and do it. Ignacio, welcome. Thank you. So what exactly happens when they do that? Okay, it's a joint program with the Worldwide Turtle Conservancy Program with the Four Seasons Resort Nevis, where we get transmitters and tag the turtles and we monitor their movements and create more awareness to the people. 
And how long does that take? Sometimes it can take you all night. Sometimes we've been like out in nine in the evening, come back four in the morning. So you have to be persistent. But it takes place for a week? Yes. Sometimes, yeah. We do it for the weekend, uh, normally around July time. Yes. And anybody can participate? Anyone. It's open to all. And on the Four Seasons website, we will put out the advertisements as well. But the other thing is kids can get involved too. Of course. That's the fun part. Yes. And the kids can actually name the turtles. And we have contests where you name the turtles as well. And that will be posted online. Okay. What's the strangest name the turtle ever got? Well, I know we had Coco. <laughs> Coco the turtle, fine. Yeah. <laughs> but you've been doing this how long? Um, here yeah, for quite a long time. I've been doing it over <laughs> as much as I can remember. It's quite a long time. <laughs> and what have you learned about the tagging of the turtles? What, what are they actually teaching you? Um, okay, at least when you're doing this, we use like a resin on the back of it, but it won't harm them as well. And we see their different movements to different places. And sometimes it's amazing to come back to the same beach. They've got a sort of inherent radar. Yes. Or sonar, I should say. And actually, yes. And you can actually track them online. Oh, right. that's the cool yes. thing. So that's great for the kids, too, because yes. when they go back home yes. and they've named their turtle, they're following the turtle. Yes. You can go on conserveturtles.org, and that's the Turtle Conservancy website, and you will get it there. Not bad. Do you have a favorite turtle? Uh, all of them. <laughs> it's fun. Once, once I'm there, I'm, I'm having fun. <laughs> and the, the thing is, just don't, prepare, just don't prepare a regular daytime schedule or a nighttime schedule. Yeah. It's when the turtles show up, yes. the so turtles show up. Yeah. So you may be there, you have mosquitoes biting you, so you don't worry about that. Oh, it's that. part of the experience. Yes. <laughs> but at least you're giving the warning. Oh, yeah. Now, you're also a poet. Yes, I do. When did you start doing that? Uh, well, since I was little, I loved it a bit, but I used to, we used to have like a DJ system. I used to be shy. I used to be in the background. I would just write a little dub, but I won't come on the microphone. <laughs> You're on the microphone now. Yeah. I got a little brave over the years, and I went by a local spot, and there were there, so I did something, and if I was shaking at the time, but I, would not, I did not stutter, and then I just kept on doing it. So do you have a poem for me now? Uh, yes, I do. All right, Ignacio Utley and Queen of the Caribbean, go. Okay. Welcome to Nevis, Queen of the Caribbees. Beautiful sandy beaches and tropical fruit trees. The most genuine, friendliest people that you'll ever meet. It don't take much effort, but we'll sweep you clean off your feet. Before I proceed, we'll exceed your expectations and every needs. We are simple, loving, caring human beings. Easily accessed via air and sea. Everyone, Nevis is the place to be. We are 36 square miles with five parishes, approximate population of 12,000 pieces, people, and traditional finger-licking dishes. A taste of our meals, you might even eat the utensils. But if you'd like to, we can create edible stencils. Exotic beaches, coconut and palm trees. Relax on the beach. Drink some killer bees. Mountain biking, horseback riding, deep sea fishing, liming, snorkeling, scuba diving, romantic dining. The island's very inviting. That's just a, just, just a few, even hiking and mountain climbing. Our highest point is called Nevis Peak. It's 3,232 feet high. So refreshing being amidst the clouds in the sky. It's warm and sunny with tropical cool breeze. Relax under a tree, put your mind at ease. Nevis is friendly for all ages, but numerous people come here and wound up making babies. Attractable <laughs> and enchanting, but very irresistible. You'll never hear the word impossible. Get engaged in then beach weddings. We ensure you leave with happy endings, but I'd say it's the start of new beginnings. There's so much to do and say, but you'll experience on your stay. So much joy you'll have in less than half a day. Our prestigious resorts and hotels are very accommodating. Not just the facilities, but impeccable service you'll be receiving. Once you're here, you won't even think about leaving. Nevis nice and very relievable. You've got to try some local drinks when you're here. A few are Ting Jinxing Up and Carib. That's the real man's beer. <laughs> Not because I'm good at words, I won't sugarcoat. But you know the feeling when someone rock your boat. Any former guest I know can attest. I'm sure they'll tell you that Nevis and its people are simply the best. Thank you. Ignacio Otley, who's done the impossible because he found a word to rhyme with, <laughs> with utensils. <laughs> 
That was the one. You found a word to ride. <laughs> hey, if you're coming to the resort here at the Four Seasons, check out Ignacio. He is your turtle guide. He's your turtle concierge. And if you like, he'll even write a poem for you. Ignacio, thanks for joining us. Hey, that music means you're out of time for the entire show. Lots of people to thank. Dara Stone, Alessandra B., Jeff Ryder, Mitchell Nova, and the entire staff here at the Four Seasons of Nevis. We'll see you next week, everybody, from another resort, remote location, spa, bowling alley, or whatever, somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> if you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.